Welcome to Lasso Lessons. I'm Mike Merrill. And I'm Kathy Buckman. Today we're talking about Season 2, Episode 10, No Weddings and a Funeral. And of course, this is a play on the famous movie title, Four Weddings and a Funeral. It seems appropriate that they would play on the title of that particular film, given that we've discussed previously that Ted Lasso takes a lot of its references from romantic comedies starring Hugh Grant and others. So it feels like an important touchstone. We open on Sam and Rebecca in bed, and Sam is finding hiding their relationship stressful, but Rebecca wants to keep it that way. Of course, as she does, Rebecca's mom, Deborah, drops in. You'll remember how she surprised hunky Luca in the kitchen previously to basically tell Rebecca once again that her father has left. But this time, it's a permanent leaving. Her father has died. Before we get to the funeral, we have a few storylines, or in some cases, simply threads to set up. One is Deborah, Rebecca's mother, her love for Rick Astley's Never Gonna Give You Up, which is the famous Rick Roll song. This doesn't seem like a true story, but it will pay off in a couple of ways. Trust us. Another important storyline here is Keeley's discomfort with funerals and more specifically concerns about the afterlife. Roy is very much in the when you die, you die camp and is having some fun at Keeley's expense. And finally, Ted once again experiences a panic attack. It's interesting how they set this up. We see Ted dancing as he gets ready for the funeral. The camera passes over two photos. One is of Nate and Ted, on which Nate has scribbled, thank you for everything you've done for me. And another is of Ted's son. As we've been saying all season, fathers and sons are a big theme this year. And I think showing Nate here with Ted is intriguing. As we will discuss, it sets us up a bit for the last couple of episodes of the seasons. As our listeners know, we generally don't get too far ahead when we're watching Ted Lasso, but we have, in fact, watched to the end of season two. We won't give any explicit spoilers about the last couple episodes of the season, but we will be setting up some of the themes that will play out. So to that end, let's jump to a scene at the funeral where Keely notes the suit that Nate is wearing and asks if it is the one that Ted had given him in season one. This causes the overly blunt Jan Maas to say, another man buying you clothes is infantilizing, yes? And this reminds us of how Ted really did mentor Nate in season one, bringing him up from being the club attendant to becoming a coach. In some ways, he even played the role of a parent. And as we said, this will become important for the finale of the season, but let's leave that there for now. It is interesting how different the emotional register is around the mention of the suit that Ted bought for Nate. In season one, the suit was really emblematic of Ted looking out for Nate, Ted taking Nate under his wing, and you would imagine that the emotional register around the suit would be really positive for Nate. But at this point, when Jan Moss makes this somewhat clumsy statement, it's interesting that the suit has become a source of discomfort. Nate. You can see in his face that this is almost an embarrassing thing for him, that this suit was purchased for him by Ted. And so just that shift in the emotional tenor is interesting. And just building off of that, this episode puts a lot of emphasis on the wardrobe choices that everybody from the football club needs to make in order to attend the funeral for Rebecca's father. We get a lot of humorous scenes of them not wanting to wear dress shoes or not even understanding how dress shoes are purchased. 
I think what this does for me anyway is it puts me in mind of the sometimes odd dynamics that you get when work colleagues attend weddings and funerals on behalf of each other. And of course, the storyline of Danny Roja never having worn dress shoes before and being unable to really even cope with them at all is played for great humor here. But it's hard not to feel that it's about this sort of everyone else's discomfort around being at a funeral and how you be at funerals. Yeah, completely. I think that there's just some baked in discomfort that people are going to feel when we cross these odd work home boundaries on behalf of our work colleagues. Suddenly, you know, if you're at a wedding for a work colleague, there's a different dress code. There's a different kind of expectation around what kinds of emotions you're going to show and perform. At a wedding, you're expected to be happy. At a funeral, you're expected to perform a certain kind of sadness. And the characters talk about this explicitly. I think Keeley herself directly references how odd all these dynamics are, that if you attend a funeral, you have to pretend to be sad, even if that's not what you're really feeling. This is just odd to me because in the workplace, I think most people would say that emotions are more or less banished, or at least they're expected to be banished that everybody is supposed to show up in this very neutral way for each other in work interactions. And now at the opposite end of the spectrum, if you show up for a work colleague at a wedding or a funeral, emotions are expected and almost demanded in this strange, uncomfortable way. So we left Ted there getting dressed. You remember that just before the last panic attack he had on the field, Ted has this little sound montage and plays under. He hears his own son's voice and then the voice of Jamie's father bringing together various fathers and sons. This time, we have a more visual approach. We see a number of images quickly intercut with Ted. The toy soldier, which was a gift from his son, his son himself, and the dart hitting the board. And that's when, in the famous dart scene in season one, where he beat Rupert, and where we first learned about his father's early death. As others gather for the funeral, Dr. Sharon visits Ted. And I like this because it's a mirror of the visits to Dr. Sharon's apartment by Ted. It turns out that she too hates tea, and Ted decides to tell her everything. And what we have now are the scene of Ted speaking with Dr. Sharon about his father's death in his apartment, and the scenes of Rebecca speaking with her mother, Deborah, about a particular instance of her father's infidelity. And the scene takes place at the church where the funeral is being held. And these two scenes are being intercut. Uh, and not just a typical intercutting, we're really interwoven. Ted says it was 1990, and Rebecca says one, for example. Rebecca says Friday the 13th, and Ted starts talking about the Jason movies. And it's very hard to miss that basically we are hearing two acts of betrayal of a child, of a spouse. Ted notes the latter specifically, how his father betrayed his mother by killing himself. And clearly, we get a sense of how it might have shaped these two characters, notably in their relationships. Yeah, I'm going to talk about that more toward the back half when we talk about how some of these things may have become patterns that inform some of Ted and Rebecca's behaviors. But before we do that, I just want to jump in that we do hear from Ted that in retelling the story to Dr. Sharon about how he actually found his father in the family home after his suicide, one note I want to make here is that 
we hear that after Ted finds his father's body, one of his first reactions is to drink one of his father's Coors Lights. And this detail seems to perhaps be the origin of something that plays out frequently in other episodes where we see Ted turn to alcohol in times of stress. Dr. Sharon helps Ted discover that while he has hated his father for killing himself, Ted can still find love for him. And Rebecca's mother pledges that despite her husband's infidelities, she has continued to love him. Once I love someone, she says, I never give up loving them. This insistence on loving someone plays out in the service as she attempts and basically fails to speak a eulogy for her father. Rebecca begins to sing the lyrics to Never Gonna Give You Up from the Rick Astley song we heard earlier. Never going to give you up, never going to let you down, never going to run around and desert you. And then Ted, arriving late, basically picks up the song from the back of the church. The earlier intercutting between the two of them now plays out with him joining her in song and like her, discovering that he too can love his parent despite the obvious obstacles. Yeah, I like how the director here decided not to have Hannah Waddington actually sing this song to the level of performance we know she's capable it would have been impressive, but it really wouldn't have captured what they were trying to go for here in this moment. I also just want to interject that this is an interesting song choice for a series that has at least a couple references to Elvis Costello. For example, in the previous episode, Beard After Hours, the fake name that Coach Beard gives at the club is Declan Patrick Aloysius McManus, which is pretty close to Elvis Costello's real name. Elvis Costello's songwriter and performer, who is linked in my mind with another similar contemporary artist, Nick Lowe. Most people will know Nick Lowe from the 70s hit Cruel to be Kind. Now, Nick Lowe wrote a song in 1990 called All Men Are Liars that mentions our Rick Astley directly. In fact, the lyrics are, do you remember Rick Astley? He had a big fat hit that was ghastly. And the point of that song, All Men Are Liars, is that the lyrics of Never Gonna Give You Up are obviously a total fantasy. No one could ever live up to those lyrics. And so what I think is interesting is that despite the fantasy and non-reality of the lyrics, Ted and Rebecca have both found a way to make it into an anthem that reflects the feelings they're having at the moment. Another thing I would note is the mirroring here between this episode and the previous episode, at least in order, although I believe it was actually shot later, Beard After Hours, which also ends in a church with a musical scene. And it really felt to me like these were mimicking each other. As we know, there's a number of references to religion throughout Ted Lasso. Beard is on FaceTime on his iPhone with Jane in the run-up to the service, and they talk about being in an Anglican church, and he keeps her on FaceTime for the funeral service itself. In the wake of the funeral, pun intended, we have a few very important things happen. First, Rupert has shown up with his young wife, Bex, with a new baby, tells Rebecca that he has convinced Bex to give up her shares in Richmond. Just no time for footy these days, he says. And then he goes over to whisper to Nate, and we'll just leave that image to be picked up in a later episode. Secondly, Rebecca feels she needs to break things off with Sam. Her reasoning seems a bit paradoxical. Rebecca is breaking up with him because he is wonderful. He could hurt her and it scares her. And she says she needs to figure out why. And it's hard not to see that this may have something to do with what we just heard about her parents' relationship. 
Thirdly, we have a great scene. It's just like a distillation of the Ted Lasso essence. You'll remember that we've called Ted Lasso the anti-Seinfeld, of which Larry David, one of the creators of that show, said the rule was no hugs, no learning. What we're about to get is an intense wave of both. This is a scene that once again, both emphasizes the way that Roy and Jamie are alike, but puts them on a collision course while also at the same time allowing them to rise above that in the moment. Jamie, who we saw a lot during the funeral scenes, tells Keeley that he didn't just come back to Richmond to get away from his father, but because of Keeley. He says he's finally becoming the best version of himself, the man she always knew he could be. And he says, I know it's a mad, shitty thing to do, but he tells her that he loves her. And then Roy just pops into frame. He comes over as Keeley's trying to digest that. He comes over to apologize about the jokes he's made at her expense regarding her concerns about death. He tells her it's just that death makes him uncomfortable. When his grandfather died, he spent every single night praying for a whole year to speak or see him one more time. But we only get this one life, he says, and I don't want to waste a second of it. I love you, Keely. He says, I'm sorry. So we see these two men at this moment where they have been transformed. Jamie, who has sort of always been willing to speak his mind, but had been quite unself-aware, has become much more in touch with who he is and what has been driving him, and likely as partly as a result from his fall from grace and his big face-off with his father. Roy has been much more self-aware. You'll remember that he understands the way that Jamie is like a younger version of himself, but he's been unable to express his emotion. Yeah, and so now Keeley is the receiver of expressions of emotion from both of them. Interesting. I like what you're doing with this. I've heard an interview where Brett Goldstein explained that the way he does Roy's voice is to speak almost as if he has a cork in his throat, stopping up his feelings. And now is a moment after a funeral, which is understandable, everybody's contemplating mortality and the meaning of life. Both men express love to Keely. And it's great to have Keely as the receiver of this, too, because she is not only someone who loves or has loved both men, but she's often the emotional center of the show. As we've noted, yeah. And I think it is interesting that, you know, what Keely wanted from Jamie was for him to, like we said, grow up mature, become more self-aware, and she wanted Roy to become more vulnerable. And in these moments, we see them both responding to what she's been asking them to become. And it's clearly setting up a, a tough dynamic for her and for all three of them. The episode ends with Rebecca and Deborah in Rebecca's old room. And they find an old videotape, which has images of Rebecca as a child. But then clearly it's been recorded over and Rick Astley pops up to sing Never going to give it you up one more time. Yeah. And this episode has rickrolled us all one more time. All right. Just one special note here. There's a final song that comes up under the credits. And don't be surprised if you don't immediately recognize this song. It's called I Remember Firelight by Molly Drake. It was recorded in the 1950s. I'll tell you more about that in a second. But it tells of a woman who remembers basically the good stuff about a relationship. She talks about a trip and how she remembers it differently from her lovers, how he remembers it. I remember firelight, and you remember smoke. I remember willow trees, and you remember gnats. I remember oranges, and you remember dust. And obviously, this fits in very nicely with the themes of the episode of hanging on to love despite obstacles. 
it's sort of funny and sort of sad at the same time. If you've never heard of Molly Drake, I'm not surprised. As I said, this is from the 1950s, and it's really sort of a home recording. How do we know about this at all? Well, Molly Drake was the mother of British singer-songwriter Nick Drake, who originally wrote and performed songs in the 1960s and 70s, but then died young and seems to be rediscovered every few years by young people. You may remember his Pink Moon, which played under a Volkswagen commercial a couple of years back. Molly Drake's songs and poems were completely unknown until much later, after a documentary about her son, which premiered in 2001, I believe. Interest in her grew, and this song, I Remember Firelight, and others were released in the 2010s. One final note here, and maybe one of the reasons why this was used here, perhaps, is Drake suffered from depression, and some believe that he was a victim of suicide. So there may be further resonances here in the choice of the song. Yeah, it seems like a fitting choice for an episode that focuses on a funeral and takes us into the world of characters who experience depression and anxiety. So, Kathy, what are some of the themes that you saw at play here in this episode? Oh, there's really a lot to talk about here, but I'm going to limit myself to three observations. The first thing I really want to talk about is the idea that repeatedly throughout this episode, characters are asking for or receiving from others the kind of support that comes when somebody can understand how you're making sense of the world. So let me talk about making sense of the world. There's a term that my colleagues and I use a lot, which is sense-making. People are sense-makers. And you can almost imagine that when two people are having a conversation, there are words coming out of their mouths, kind of like thought balloons, like if they were cartoon characters. Simultaneously, above both people's heads, there are these thought bubbles where they have kind of what it all means to them. Is it good? Is it bad? You know, what does it remind them of? How important does the conversation feel to them? None of that is really clear to other people unless you tell them about that kind of sense-making that you've made out of a situation. So all of that is just to set up what I think are a couple really interesting examples. The episode starts with Sam and Rebecca. Sam is feeling frustrated because their relationship is not public and he would like it to be. And Rebecca essentially dismisses the sense-making that Sam is implicitly asking her to hear, which is... Not just, I don't want this to be secret, but that this is difficult for me. This is putting me under a certain amount of pressure. This is not how I like to live my life. So in this case, I think what Rebecca is really doing is rejecting the sense that Sam is making and refusing to acknowledge or play it back to him. And this feels very similar, I think, to the dynamic that we get between Keeley and Roy in those scenes where Keeley is discussing death and does Roy want to be buried and how does he want to be buried? And all of this feels very tedious and strange to Roy. And Keeley starts talking about being buried in a biodegradable sack so that she can fertilize apple trees. Roy just makes a lot of jokes about this. But I think what she's implicitly asking him to do is to take this seriously and help her explore the sense-making that she's making about death in this moment and the fact that he rejects that request won't go there in a serious way, will only make jokes and deflect, is something that hurts her and bothers her. 
So there you've sketched two examples where people are not understanding and not working with others, not cooperating with other sense making. Do you have any positive examples in this episode of people trying to make sense with others? Yeah, absolutely. So there is this really satisfying experience you can have where you're trying to stumble through something and make sense of it. And somebody else actively helps you and in fact, plays back to you some of what they think that you may be trying to express or articulate. And not surprisingly, Dr. Sharon is really good at this, right? Professionally, we see her supporting Ted by helping him explore his sense-making around his father's death and getting him to articulate it. So as a result of her questioning, we see Ted say things like, he quit on his family and himself. And also, I hated him for that. I think I still hate him for it. And Sharon says directly, this is a difficult thing for anyone to make sense of. But honestly, Ted has made sense of it, right? I mean, a suicide is just a suicide, but it's up to the living to decide what they think it means and what the significance of it is. And you can feel anger towards that person. You can feel sadness. You can feel all of the above. And what Dr. Sharon is doing here is she's helping him explore his feelings of anger. She helps him make sense, but she also, I think, in some ways, helps him find another direction. You know, she doesn't just mindlessly reflect back to him where he is, where he's stuck. No, not at all. In fact, I think if you're going to really help somebody make sense, what you're trying to do is interject a little bit of your own thinking to fill in the blanks for them, to help push them along, to help them frame things up in a way that maybe they can't quite get to. So it's really not a question of paraphrasing back but rather pushing people towards something that feels almost like it's providing them with an insight. I think you also said you wanted to come back to the scene where Ted and Rebecca's stories are intercut and interwoven. Yeah, I did want to come back to that. That obviously is a powerful scene and an example of good writing and good directing. But what I think makes it hang together, at least for me, what I find so interesting about it is that it's showing us how people can tell the story of something traumatic that has happened to them. And then you can see what power that story has over them in a kind of lasting way. So let me sort of explain. Ted is telling the story of what we now understand to be the anger that he feels toward his father for his father's suicide. We also get Rebecca telling her story, which is a painful memory about her own father being a grave disappointment to her and the anger that she feels about her own father and how in both cases, these episodes have turned from anger almost into hate. What I want to add to this, because none of that is really all that insightful, but what I want to add to this is the idea that having these trauma stories about somebody close to them who they loved seems related to their current behavior. And in some cases, they're not really at their best self-behavior. So for Rebecca, this whole revenge plot that she has been hatching through all of season one to punish the philandering Rupert feels like it's connected to this, right? You know, she's not just punishing Rupert. In a way, she's punishing her father and she's acting out that trauma and anger that she has felt. Yeah, she directly connects her leaving Rupert to her mother's failure to leave her father. Exactly. So it's not just that it fuels some of her not best self-behavior, but it also fuels some of the judgment that she feels against her own mother. 
All right. So Ted's own not best self-behavior is related to this trauma. His panic attacks are triggered when he feels like he's a bad dad or when he feels like he's letting people down. That trauma comes out for him in moments when he just gets so panicky that he can't function. But it's probably because he's feeling like he's doing some of the things that he has been so harshly judgmental of his own father for. Now, on the flip side, though, I think you also, and this is what I think is so nuanced about this show, you can also connect some of Ted and Rebecca's trauma here to what we might think of as their actual best self-behavior, what they look like when they're showing up for people in, you know, maybe their most inspirational ways. For instance, we hear Ted say in this episode that after what happened with him and his father, he decided, quote, I was never going to let anyone get by me without understanding that they might be hurting inside. So this turned into a thing that Ted has made almost like his own personal mission. It's to never ignore the fact that somebody might be hurting, even if you can't see it on the outside. And do you have a positive way that Rebecca is leveraging her traumatic experiences? Yeah, I think this is a little harder to find, but I really do think that Rebecca is a great supporter and mentor to young women, to underestimated women, to women maybe that remind her of herself at a younger age. And so she maybe is taking some of that trauma and turning it into a personal mission to lift up women and to make them independent and able to stand on their own, separate from the necessity to depend on the men in their life. The two best examples of Rebecca being a mentor and supporter to women are probably, well, first and foremost, the support that Rebecca has offered to Keeley throughout season two, and maybe even dating back to season one. We saw Rebecca being really encouraging around Keeley's aspirations to do social media marketing. The other good example would be Rebecca taking an interest in her goddaughter, Nora. We saw a whole episode around Rebecca taking Nora to work and inspiring her to see what it looks like to be a woman in a leadership role. And what's your final theme that you want to address? All right. So the final theme I want to talk about is self-awareness. There is great power that comes from knowing yourself and knowing some of your habitual and pattern reactions things. The things that almost get a reaction out of you that you don't choose intentionally. Roy, I think, has a reflex reaction to just treat everything like a joke and not be terribly serious about anything that doesn't interest him or that he doesn't feel like taking seriously. But he's able to recognize that he was behaving that way and come to Keeley and apologize to her out of what I would call self-awareness. So he names his behavior which was joking when she wanted him to be serious. And he can also explain the source of it. He can say, I'm not good with death because of this experience I had with my grandfather when I was a kid and I missed him so much. To me, that is classic example of self-awareness is when you know where your behavior comes from, you can name its source, you can step outside of it. And if it has not led you to a place you want to be, you can acknowledge that directly to others. I think we've seen this before for Roy. Is there anyone else that maybe is a little more surprising that we see self-awareness from? Yes. Self-awareness is always surprising from the characters who are least well-developed in Ted Lasso. And I think in this case, this is the most that we've seen of Rebecca's mom. 
and Rebecca's mom, Deborah, it turns out she knows herself better than we thought. If you reflect back to season two, episode six, The Signal, this episode had a lot of Deborah in it. But I think the whole point of that episode, at least as far as you and I talked about it, was to see her as trapped in a pattern of leaving her husband and then going back to him. And I think we assumed she was unaware of this pattern. And therefore, I at least pegged her away as a low self-awareness kind of character, somebody who was acting out of patterns that she wasn't aware of. But now we see something different from Deborah. We hear her say some things that point in the other direction that might make us think, actually, she does have a certain amount of self-awareness. As you said before, she says that when she loves something, she loves it forever. And she's able to explain how that has influenced some of her choices in life. She also says she didn't need her husband to be perfect as a way of explaining why she stayed with him, that this was more of a purposeful choice and less of something that she did out of weakness or as Rebecca judges her for out of a willingness to be mistreated. And we also see Deborah say at one point to Rebecca that she would rather that Rebecca hated her than be indifferent to her which strikes me as a pretty self-aware thing to say, to know what hurts you in what degrees and to know what kind of attention and interest you want from the people in your life. So I think all of this leads to what might have been a surprising ending, but isn't in light of everything we've learned about Deborah, which is that Rebecca and her mom end the episode in a really good place. And not only do Rebecca and Deborah end up in a good place at the end, but they get one final rip-roll through on all of us as the viewers when they pop that video cassette in at the end. All right, that's our breakdown of Season 2, Episode 10 of Ted Lasso, No Weddings and a Funeral. Now, coming up, we're basically going to start interweaving the final two episodes of the second season with the third season that's already been released. So depending on how you listen to these, next up would either be season two, episode 11, Midnight Train to Royston, or you'll hear season three, episode one of Ted Lasso, which is Smells Like Mean Spirits.